If you are new in visiting, we're in the middle of a series on the letter of James, uh, as you can see by the banner behind me. This week we're on page 24 of your companion journals, if you have those with you. Uh, We're looking at this morning's passage, which is James chapter 1, from verse 22 to 25. I'm going to actually read from verse 21. So, James chapter 1, verse 21. says the following. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Why don't you join with me in praying? Lord, this morning we want to thank you. We want to exalt you. We want to worship you because of all you've done for us in your son, Jesus. And this morning, Lord, as a church, our heart's desire is to to really learn from you. So we ask, Holy Spirit, open our eyes so that we might behold wondrous things from your law. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the year was 2004, and I was out with some church friends of mine at a nightclub in Wollongong. I'm originally from Wollongong, and we were at an establishment called the Glass House Tavern, known locally as the Classy Glassy. Uh, It was called the Classy Glassy uh, because it wasn't. And uh, we were out having a few drinks, and a couple of my church friends were getting really heavy on the drink. And uh, we're all university students and so on. And, you know, I kind of plucked up the courage, and I really kind of challenged them and said, hey, guys, you know, what are you doing? You know, getting smashed. And, and my friends, I remember the conversation, proceeded to respond to me 
uh, to explain to me that grace means it doesn't matter how we live. Brendan, because of Jesus and the forgiveness at the cross, who cares how we live? Who cares? It's all about grace. It's all forgiven, right? I wonder if you relate to that question at all. Have you ever asked the same question? Why does how we live even matter? If it's all about grace through faith, why does the way we live matter to God? And really, that is the crux of what we're going to be looking at uh, in this message, uh, which I've entitled, for those that take notes, The Life-Giving Word, Part 2. We've got three simple points uh, this morning that we're going to be looking at. Uh, Point number one, for those note-takers amongst us, a warning. Point number two, a mirror. And point number three, a blessed example. Three points... But really, the take-home, the one thing that I'm really hoping for us this morning as we unpack God's Word is this, is that you would receive the life-giving blessing of doing the Word, of doing this Word. That's really what we're out to. I hope we will see this morning as we look at James's message to us. So why don't we dive straight into our text with our first point, a warning. Uh, James, as we've seen, and as you can see if you have your companion journals, is a four-part sermon series uh, written by Jesus' little brother. And in the first of James's sermons that uh, we, we saw over the uh, previous handful of weeks, we saw that he was talking about really this topic of trials and Christian maturity. We need to remember that James was written to these kind of poor, suffering farmers living as refugees, driven out by persecution. And James, as this pastor who's, who loves these guys so much, but he can't get to them, so he writes this kind of collection of sermons to distribute to them. And he encourages them by saying, you know, God uses difficulty to grow you. He's working even in the midst of difficulty. As we saw, he goes on to encourage him to say, you know, you can ask God for wisdom in the midst of trial and he will give it to you. He is always working for your good, even in trials and difficulties. You see, the Jesus community at this time was brand new. Uh, Our best estimates are probably that James was writing about 10 or 15 years after Jesus went to the cross. So it's only relatively new history. There haven't been Jesus followers around from, for that much period of time at all. And they didn't kind of have the 2,000 years of Christian reflection that we enjoy. And this message of the cross was so radical. It was so revolutionary. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, was so new that many people were beginning to wonder, well, what about works? What about obedience to God? I mean, does it even matter? And last week we commenced the first uh, message of the second sermon that James brings. And his real big point in the sermon we're looking at now uh, is in his second sermon that true Christianity is seen in its works. Works are evidence of a genuine faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And last week Dave kind of brought to us a really great message helping us to see two instructions 
uh, that James gives to help receive this life-giving word. The first was to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And the second was to receive the implanted word with meekness. And in order to really help us, I want to turn back again and reread that verse 21 as we get stuck into our first point of warning. Uh, So why don't you read with me again, if you have your Bibles there or your companion journals, verse 21. James writes the following. He says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James says, take off all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent in, in your community and in the places you live and humbly receive, humbly accept the implanted word which is able to save you. Now notice that language of implanted word that's able to save you. Remember James is speaking to farmers and this is farming language. This is a language that refers to kind of the sowing of seed. Now, remember that James is the little brother of Jesus. Remember that James was soaked in Jesus' teaching. Where have we heard this language of sowing seed from before? Well, Jesus in Matthew 13 shares this parable of a sower who's sowing seed. And in that story, Jesus explains the seed symbolizes the word of the kingdom, the word of the gospel. And this farmer goes out and scatters this seed. And some of it lands on the path and, it, and it's gobbled up. But some of it lands on this rich and fertile soil and it bears even a hundredfold fruit from what was sown. And the point that Jesus is making in that parable is that we're to tend to the soil of our own hearts. Well, Well, what is the implanted word that James is talking about that's able to save you? It's the seed of the gospel. It's the word of the kingdom. It's the story of the whole Bible. The sower has placed the gospel. He's implanted its seed in our hearts. Well, then the question that immediately follows is, what does it mean to humbly receive it? How do you tend to the soil of the heart so that the implanted word bears much fruit? And this is what James is just about to go on to explain. Read with me again, verse 22. He says the following. This is how you tend to the soil of your heart. He says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. To humbly receive, to humbly accept the word, To tend to the soil of your heart means to do it. It means to act it out. It means to live by it. It means to put it into the action. If we're not putting the word into action, according to James, we're not humbly accepting it. Now, James isn't opposed to hearing the word. He's not speaking against people hearing the word. No, he's opposed to merely hearing it. He's opposed to hearing, that is, listening, without any action, without any life change. But there's a real warning in these verses. There's a real warning that should really shake us. 
It's one that's shaken me. It's a warning for all of us, but I think in some ways, particularly to those like myself in pastoral ministry, and that is, if you're merely listening, you're in danger. If you're listening without any life change, you are in deep danger. In fact, you are self-deceived. See, to be deceived is to be blinded to your true spiritual state. Uh, Dan McCartney, in his uh, commentary, uh, says the following about this deception. He says, James often speaks about the danger of deceiving oneself in verse 16 of our chapter and in verse 22 and 26. Dan writes, This quandary has bothered philosophers since before Christ. To deceive someone entails deliberately misleading that person. So a deceiver must know that what the victim is being led to believe is false. But how, then, is it possible to mislead oneself since one already knows that the error being perpetrated is untrue? Hear this. Yet it happens with astonishing regularity. Yet it happens with astonishing regularity. Self-deception. Hearing the word without any action. Happens with astonishing regularity. C.J. Mahaney writes the following. He says, Self-deception is the most subtle form of deception and probably the most serious form of deception. The most difficult form of deception to perceive is not when someone else has deceived you, but when you have deceived yourself. Self-deception is incredibly difficult to perceive because it is so subtle, and yet it happens with astonishing regularity. Well, how is it that a person who only hears the word is deceived? I put to you that there's two ways in which a person who is hearing only can be deceived. The first is a person who only hears the word may be blinded or deceived to the fact that they are not truly saved. Uh, Douglas Moo writes the following. He says, People can think that they are right with God when really they are not. And so it is for people who hear the word, regular church attenders, seminary students, and even seminary professors. But do not do it. They are mistaken into thinking that they are right with God. For God's word cannot be divided into parts. If one wants to benefit from its saving power, one must also embrace it as a guide for life. Hear this. The person who fails to do the word, James therefore suggests, is a person who has not truly accepted God's word at all. The person who has not truly or fails to do the word is a person who has not accepted God's word at all. You know, what James is talking about here is nothing new. James is merely echoing the words of his big brother, Jesus, who said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, 
He will keep my word. You know, following the word is a mark of our love for Jesus. And if we don't have a pattern of or desire to follow Jesus, then, well, you may not be a follower of Jesus at all. If your life is not marked by receiving and obeying the word, you may not be a Christian. Now, the message of the gospel is good news to those who are not marked by a life of receiving and following the law of Jesus, the word of Jesus. This is not a message that should lead to condemnation, for the message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is the word became flesh, and so this is his word, and, and, and that he came and died on the cross in our place, that simply by repenting and believing in him, we, we may come to fullness of life. You know, Jesus in Revelation 3.20 uh, says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he will dine with me. You know, Jesus Christ stands at the door and he knocks. He wants to come into our lives and take full control. He wants us to trust in him and to follow him as our Lord and Savior. And so if you're sitting here today and you're just aware, my life isn't at all marked by obedience to this word. Don't let the news that you may not be a Christian condemn you. Rather, receive the word and put your hope in Christ. And he will respond by entering into your life and saving you, redeeming you. But to trust in him means to trust in him as both our Lord and Savior. It means to trust him as the one who died on the cross in our place, but it also means to trust him as our king. And so it means to be obedient to what he says, what he says in his word. That's point one. A person who only hears the word may be blinded or deceived to the fact that they're not truly saved. The second warning is that a person who only hears the word may be blinded or deceived as to their level of maturity in Christ. You know, we can often fall into the mistaken belief that Christian maturity is determined by the length of time we've been following Jesus, or by knowledge of the Scripture, or skill in serving. Now, James is not diminishing knowledge of Scripture. No, James sees knowledge of Scripture as vital. In verse 19, he begins by saying, Know this. Know this, guys. He wants the Christians, these Christians, to know things. He's not opposed to knowledge at all. But knowledge of Scripture alone does not produce Christian maturity. No, knowledge of Scripture alone doesn't produce Christian maturity or the devil would be the most mature of Christians. Knowledge alone, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, puffs up if it's not lovingly put into action. You see, our culture idolizes education and skill and success, and so we can begin to equate those things with Christian maturity. We might have grown up in the church. We might have long attended Bible study or led Bible studies. We might have had a great education or even a theological education. But does that alone make you mature? No, it doesn't. 
It does not. You know, I, I remember some years ago uh, chatting to someone, asking if they were going to come to a men's event we were running, and they said to me, you know, Brennan, nah, to be honest, I've been in churches like this my whole life, and to be honest with you, I've heard it all before. But here's the problem. Knowledge is not the mark of Christian maturity. Faithfulness to Christ is. The question is, how much, not how much of Christ do I know, but how much of my time and my talents and my treasure is devoted to loving Him? And also, therefore, to loving my neighbor as myself. And if we're simply listening to this word, but there's no life change, if we're simply hearing but not following, we're self-deceived. And we can be deceived as to our level of maturity in Christ. And James is lovingly warning us. He's warning us against being deceived. He's, he's warning us about knowledge alone, about merely hearing and saying that merely hearing, merely listening to God's word doesn't position us to receive the life-changing power of God's word. And that's point number one, a warning against being deceived. Not just point number two, point number one, but point number two, a mirror. Verses 23 and 24. See, James wants to go on further to explain this idea of merely listening with a sermon illustration. So why don't we read it together in verse 23. He says, For any, If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. James says, looking without doing is, out, is, is like a man looking into a mirror. At the time, mirrors were a common object. They were made of a polished metal, like polished brass, and so a little bit different from ours. But they were still a common household item. And this man looks at his face. And you can imagine him looking at his face and, and perhaps noticing a bit of dirt or a, an area that's unshaven or maybe some big zits or stuff between the teeth. And you would think this insight would lead to action. But he wanders off without changing anything. The man forgets. You know, we often think of forgetting as kind of an accidental thing. Oh, I just forgot. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking more about the forgetfulness that is due to inattention. More akin to the parent. And if there's parents here today, um, you'll be familiar with this. More akin to the parent who instructs a child to clean their room. And the child sort of briefly looks up from the Xbox and says, yeah, 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 I will, I will, I will, I will, and carries on playing and the parent returns half an hour later only to find that the task has not been done. And the child says, oh, I forgot. Now that wasn't forgetfulness because they'd appropriately given due attention. No, that was the forgetfulness of inattention. This man here gives inappropriate attention to his face and therefore forgets. You know, I don't know if you're anything like me, but you can find yourself a little bit paranoid about getting stuff on your face. Um, I find chocolate ice cream 
is a, a real one, particularly if you're having it out of a, a cone and you're sort of constantly doing this and dabbing and looking, dabbing and looking, because you're worried about having stuff on your face. Uh, eating salad is another common uh, example, and you kind of find yourself constantly rubbing your teeth and checking to see if there's something lodged between the two teeth. I, I, one that's in particular been relevant for me recently is for some reason I've had this rogue hair at the back that wants to just stand straight up like Tintin. And I constantly kind of feel myself tapping my head and even looking in the mirror to try and see if, if that hair is standing up, up straight, straight up, mind you, at the back of my head. And in this passage, James wants to give us this familiar illustration. He's comparing God's Word with a mirror. A mirror that reveals our true condition. A mirror which shines the rays of truth on us. We might think we are well and good and all is well with our face until we look into the mirror of the Word. And God's character and God's purpose in Scripture are shone at us and they reveal to us who we are. We see our reflection as a result. And so listening without life change is like seeing the mess uh, on your face and doing nothing about it. It's meant to be ridiculous. The purpose of the mirror is to help you change. Now this morning, I'm guessing that probably everyone here spent some time looking in the mirror before you came to church. Some of you, I'm sure, you combed that loose, stray hair. Some of you shaved. Some of you plucked or squeezed or dabbed with makeup. Some of you sighed (laughs) as you came to grips with another morning and reality. Now imagine someone attending this church who never attended to a mirror, who not once attended to a mirror at all, but in fact, on the occasions that they did attend to a mirror, completely ignored what they saw, the gunk on their face, the massive patch that they'd failed to shave. I mean, wouldn't that be ridiculous? And so it is when we ignore what God says to us in His Word. Paul Tripp says this, he says, When the Word of God, faithfully taught by the people of God and empowered by the Spirit of God, falls down, people become different. Lusting people become pure. Fearful people become courageous. Thieves become givers. Demanding people become servants. Angry people become peacemakers. Complainers become thankful. And idolaters come to joyfully worship the one true God. Hear this, the ultimate purpose of the Word of God is not theological information, but heart and life transformation. The Word of God is transformative power from God. It leads people to worship. It leads to heart and life transformation. And I think a big part of our problem is that often we fail to recognize what a gift we have in the Word of God. 
And so I believe we need to adjust our vision to see this amazing gift as James does. To see it as the way he describes it in verse 18. That God of his own will has brought us forth by the word of truth. Do you realize this is the word of truth? Completely without error. Completely truthful. It tells the truth about God and you like looking in a mirror. Do you see that? Do you see that it's the, as James describes in verse 25, the perfect law. The perfect law. That's the translation. The the word in Greek is nomos, which is a word that's usually used uh, in Greek translations of the Old Testament, translate for the word Torah. And Torah, or nomos, Torah in Hebrew, uh, usually refers to the book of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And although we translate it law, it's probably better to translate it as instruction. And James is saying here, this is the perfect instruction. The perfect instruction. And in one sense, he's talking about passages like 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you realize this is the perfect instruction that God has placed in here everything you need to please Him perfectly? The perfect instruction manual for your life. But more than that, James goes on to say in verse 25, it's the law of liberty. You know, it's a little puzzling to hear that expression, the law of liberty, the law that gives you freedom. Because in our culture, we kind of think of law and freedom as kind of being opposites. And so it's a kind of oxymoron, isn't it? Something that doesn't seem to make sense. Our culture says law and freedom are opposed. But actually, this law brings freedom. It brings freedom. Now, freedom is when you are free to act according to your true nature and purpose. Uh, I asked permission to give this illustration. Uh, This happened when Charlotte and I were on our honeymoon uh, about three years ago now. And we were given uh, to borrow as a gift from my brother-in-law and um, sister-in-law, Charlotte's brother and his wife, one of their prized cameras. It was a waterproof camera, a Nikon camera. And the instruction that uh, my uh, wife's brother, Simeon, gave to Charlotte about using this camera was as follows. What you need to do, Charlotte, is you need to open up the camera, take out the batteries and the memory card, and then soak the camera in water after you use it. Okay? So we went on holidays. We're using this camera. It's amazing. You can shoot underwater and everything. And so Charlotte then took the camera when we got home, uh, opened up the side, took out the batteries and the SD card and soaked the camera in water with the side door to the compartment still open in the water. And the camera, the prized camera, was completely destroyed. 
caused a lot of grief on our honeymoon and a lot of worry as we tried to dry it out to no, to no avail. Now, the reason why I bring this point up is because instruction manuals and instructions allow us to freely use things. You know, when we know how things like a camera are designed to be used according to the instruction manual, we can freely use it according to the way it was designed to be used. The camera is truly free when the operator is using the instruction manual. Do you realize this is the instruction manual for your life? put together by the one who made you. The one who has a true purpose for you. And do you realize that reading this and following this will set you free? The creator of the universe, the creator of you, is teaching you how to live freely in the world he made for you. You know, I was meeting with someone uh, just this week who has recently come back to Christ and for a season rejected this word and refused to follow this word. And this person was recounting to me just the pain, just the suffering that he'd inflicted upon himself in failing to follow this word. It's a law of liberty. It sets you free. Well, not just a warning, but a mirror. God's word like a mirror is purposed to show us our true state and enable us to change. It's it's the word of truth, the perfect law and the law of liberty. That's point two, not just a warning, but point two, a mirror. And point three, a blessed example. You see, James is a loving pastor and he's very clear in his purpose. He wants you to receive a blessing. Read what he says in verse 25. He says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He wants you to receive a blessing. Well, what does it even mean to be blessed by God? I love what Jeff Perswell says uh, that God's blessing is. Jeff Perswell de- defines the blessing of God as this. He says, The blessing of God is to bask in the smile of God and all his blessings. Isn't that great? To be blessed by God is to bask in his smile and all of his blessings. And that's what God wants for us. He's saying, Follow this law and there is a promise. Follow this law and you will find yourself basking in the smile of God and all of his blessings. You'll be blessed now in living with the grain of the universe, in living according to the law of liberty, in living life to the full as Jesus came to provide for us, as he says in John John 10.10. You'll be blessed now. But more than that, you'll be blessed in the future As James writes in verse 12, when you will receive the crown of life on that day. Well, what does it look like then, you know, to to listen in a way that leads to life change? 
How do I tend to the soil of my heart and truly listen and allow the implanted word to, to grow and bear fruit? And we see in verse 25 a blessed example with three simple points that James gives to us. Firstly, he says, let me read again that verse 25. He says, but the one who looks, the one who looks, that word there means to look intently. It means actually literally to stoop over, to take a closer look, to bend down, to look. It's the word that was used in the Gospels of Mary as she comes to examine the tomb of Jesus. She stoops down to look inside. It's a word that talks about careful observance. It's not just superficial skimming, but it's deep reflection. It's gazing into the mirror. I don't know if you're like me, but uh, sometimes you find yourself maybe in your quiet time, just kind of skimming through the word or listening to a podcast while you're driving and, um, and or having a conversation or something like that. And um, you get to the end and you think, what was it about? And you've got no idea. You've got no clue what you just read or what you just listened to. We need to look carefully. We need to have prayers like, Lord, open my eyes to help me see you as I read. Lord, search my heart and reveal to me any ways that be displeasing to you. But not just looking. He goes on to say in verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and what? And perseveres. And perseveres. It's not just a one-off look, but it's a pattern of repeated coming back to gaze deeply into this word. The man with the mirror, he looks and then he walks away. This is different. It's coming back again and again and again until it sinks into your soul. You know, if you go home and read your Bible tonight, it probably won't change your life. Life change will not come from one-offs, but perseverance. Repeatedly coming back again and again and again to stare. Coming back a thousand times over. This is ant power. Day after day, little by little, persevering. The blessed man keeps going, even when it seems like there's no result. You know, our generation, it struggles so much with this to even just stay focused enough to persevere. We give up so quickly where there's no evidence of change, and yet James is calling us to persevere. And how timely this would have been in the context of the original hearers that James is writing to, who were going, undergoing immense persecution. You know, when you're in the midst of suffering and you're not feeling it, where your heart is cold and you're anxious, at times it can be hard to keep going. And yet James encourages us to persevere, to keep going. But not just that, not just persevering, he goes on, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He remembers and acts. No forgetful hearer. No hearer who gives inappropriate attention to what he is reading. But he remembers. Remembering forgetfulness is not accidental. It's insufficient 
attention. And so what does it mean to remember? Well, Doug Moo says to remember God, his acts and his teachings is to contemplate them in such a way that they make a lasting impression on the heart and mind. The person who forgets what he has seen in God's word is the one who reads or listens superficially, not imprinting the message on the soul. And so we gaze deeply. We persevere in gazing deeply and we remember and we do. This is the blessed example. The man who looks intently at the word, perseveres in his looking and then remembers and does. Well, in closing, how do, we, how do we apply this message? How do we apply these instructions? Well, just as we said, we, we, we gaze deeply, repeatedly, and we do what we see. I want to ask us a question. I want you to consider a question as Uh, we go from here this week, and that is, what's one way you need to change in response to this word? You know, in the companion journals uh, that you have, you'll see that there's this symbol, the chair, and it's about finding just a verse from every message that you can meditate on and respond to, and that's something we're trying to provide for you as a way of applying this, this principle, this, this way of life. You know, we've got growth groups this week, and maybe, maybe you want to share in the context of your growth group one, one way, one way that you can start doing the Word, applying what you're reading, listening with life change. Maybe some of you are sitting here and, and just thinking, well, Brennan, I can't actually think of anything I need to change in. You know, sometimes the longer we're walking with Jesus, the more attention we give to knowledge and the less we give to change. I want to ask you a question, if that's you. How's your listening going? I want to ask you another question. Is it possible that you're being deceived? Maybe you could this week ask your spouse or ask the guys in your group or ask the Holy Spirit to show you one way in which you could grow in doing this word. You know, I think for others sitting here this morning, maybe you're sitting there thinking, you know, I can think of a thousand things I want to change and this is completely overwhelming. Well, There's a metaphor that's frequently used in the Bible for the Christian life, and it's not running, it's not sprinting, it's not jumping, it's walking. And so I want you to ask God to help you just pick one thing, one thing that you could grow in, one thing that you could do in response to this word. But if you're sitting here and thinking, man, this is overwhelming, you're actually wrong. It's not overwhelming. It's impossible. It's impossible in and of yourself to change in this. You can't. You cannot change by yourself. But here's the good news. We can do it because of what he has done.
you know, we were reading before about the perfect law. It's not just the perfect law because it's the perfect instruction. There's another sense. It's the perfect law because it's the instruction perfected by Jesus Christ. You know, Christ made it perfect. It's all about Him, and He fulfilled it fully at the cross. Hear this from Hebrews 10, 11. The writers of the Hebrews says the following. He says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You know, this instruction isn't just the perfect instruction. It's the instruction made perfect for us by Jesus Christ. And what a beautiful motivation for us then to do what we read as we read about Christ. But more than that, it's not just the perfect instruction, the perfect law, it's the law of liberty, not just because in obedience to uh, this law we find freedom, but because He has written it on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You know, just from that passage, the writer goes on in the very next verse to say the following. He says, quoting Jeremiah 31, 33, he says this, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Isn't that good news? He has taken this law and he has written it on your heart. You know, in verse 18, James says, Of his own will, he brought you forth by this word of truth. He began the work in you, friends. He took this word and he has written it on your heart and he will help you. He will help you in this. By the cross, He lives in you and will help you. He will help you gaze deeply. He will help you gaze repeatedly. He will help you do what you see. He began the good work and He will bring it to completion. Well, back in 2004 at the Glass House Tavern, the classy, glassy, my friends, they were deceived. They couldn't properly see this life-giving word. I trust we've seen the word of truth. I trust we've seen the perfect law, the law of liberty. And I trust that we'd gaze into it deeply, repeatedly, and do what it says. Why don't you pray with me as I pray that we'd receive the life-giving blessing of doing the word. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you this morning as your people. We want to thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your kindness to us, a people that are often wayward, that struggle and stumble and, and fall. I just pray, Lord, you would help us. Help us to see wonderful things in your law. Help us to see Christ and help us to walk in his steps. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.